welcome back to Shade Podcast with me, Lou Mensah, and our ninth series, where we'll explore the influences that shape black contemporary art today. Inspired by the tradition of the harmony between the lyrical and the visual, these artists' conversations reveal the people and the sounds that inspire their practice. There's a playlist to accompany the series, which was created for you by my guests. So enjoy this convening of spirits to mark the end of the year. Today I'm delighted to introduce a really special episode with the musician and my friend Brian Jackson. You may know Brian's work from his partnership with Gil Scott Heron. Together they made 10 albums over an eight-year period, including Pieces of a Man and Winter in America. Time and time again, that music has found its way into over 100 cuts like Commons, The People from We Almost Lost Detroit and Kendrick Lamar's Poe Man's Dreams from Peace Go With You, Brother. Brian and I met through our kids, funnily enough, kind of. Brian's wife and I were in the same school chat group. And from there, I met Brian. Just a funny chance thing, but Brian's been a generous supporter of the show ever since, from writing music for Shade Podcast to joining us for this conversation today. And I started by asking Brian about Langston Hughes and how it was his legacy that brought him and Gil Scott Heron together. Okay, so Brian, like I'm so happy to have you join me and I wanted to talk with you particularly today because your work is so inspiring to me personally and you've been so generous to me in this podcast and the music that the listeners hear as they tune into the show it's the music that you so generously created for us but specifically your career we're here to talk about that today and your music and what inspires you and what supports you in the creative process and your work spans the albums that you've created over the years, starting from the work you did with Gil Scott Heron to your solo albums and your collaborations on albums like Jazz is Dead, which is the ongoing project spearheaded by Adrian Young and Ali Shaheed Mohammed from a tribe called Quest and all of these amazing things. And But I just want to start at the beginning of your career. And, and obviously, we're going to start with talking about how you met Gil And I read that you both enrolled at Lincoln University because Langston Hughes went there. And I thought that was so interesting, like within the context of this podcast, which is about the presences that surround us when we work. And I think it's beautiful that Langston Hughes kind of in a way connected you and Gil, two young men, as you were about to enter one of the most formative partnerships of your lives. But just wonder how Gil's presence in your life informs your work today. Thank you so much. I just want to first just want to thank you, Lou, for having me on Shade Podcast. Um, The conversations that you have had and instigated are so important to the Black community, you know, here and here in the States as well. And uh, and I I was happy, was more than happy to be able to contribute to you. And I'm honored, you know, I'm I'm really honored to be on your show. Thank you. Um, Thank you. Gil and I did meet. I guess you could say because of Langston Hughes. I, in particular, thought that after having fought for a Black history curriculum at the high school I was in in Brooklyn, I figured probably one of the most logical um, things for me to do was to go to 
an all-African-American-centric university. And, of course, once I found out that people, not just Langston Hughes, but there was uh, Thurgood Marshall, there was Kwame Nkrumah, there was Oscar Brown Jr. All of these people went there, and it just seemed like a logical place for me to continue my journey into, uh, you know, into Afrocentricity. Uh, it's not what I found. <laughs> it's not what I found because, uh, you know, because of the pressures of an African-American university, because of the pressures put on them by the, uh, the college boards, et cetera. They were kind of, their feet were pretty much to the fire at all times in terms of uh, their ability to, to stretch out and, uh, you know, and, and, and encompass a, a broader perspective. You know, it, it took a while for all of those things to catch on. And, and it, in varying degrees, it, it happened in different places. I mean, you know, for instance, Howard University didn't seem to have that same fear of acceptance by the white college board, et cetera, you know. And, uh, no, it was an interesting thing. And so that when, when I got there and I found out that there really was no Afrocentric curriculum, I got depressed at first. And then I began to reach out to... I started running into other students there who understood my depression and my disappointment. And I think that kind of disappointment, if you will, was what brought us together in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. But at the same time, there was this history, there was this legacy at Lincoln University that we could draw inspiration from. You know, it, it kept us strong. I think it was the actual community, the student community at Lincoln University that kept us strong enough to be able to create in a safe space. When I think about community and safety and caring for one another, I was thinking about your podcast as well, Pieces of a Man, which you co-host with Keith Lamar. And just one of the episodes really sticks in my mind since I first heard it. And it's when you were both talking about the influence that John Coltrane's music has had on you both. And for anyone that hasn't heard Pieces of a Man podcast yet, it's about your experiences and Keith's experiences growing up through three generations of American conflict. And you talk about how music has helped you both feel free. For context, Keith is currently a prisoner on death row. If you wouldn't mind, I'd love you to share how Coltrane inspires your music. I think the first time that I heard Coltrane, he was doing a version of a very popular song called My Favorite Things, which was a musical um, portion of the film Sound of Music. Totally unrecognizable <laughs> in its form, <laughs> in its form by Coltrane. It's a a six eight piece or a three four you know three four piece. It's, it's basically the original song is a waltz, and Coltrane took this piece and turned it into a six eight jazz feel, which is still kind of a waltz. One two three, one two three, one two three. But he also Africanized it through his interpretation, and having Elvin Jones playing the drums on it, just completely turned it into another creation, and one that jazz people and people who were into jazz could really relate to. And this is kind of the history of jazz in a sense, that we have taken forms and, and the great musicians of all the eras have taken forms that are partly European and mostly African and put them together to create this unique 
genre, which is called, for want of a better word, and we all want a better word, jazz. And it was something about Coltrane that opened us up spiritually, because in Coltrane's music, you can hear a great deal of anger. Many critics of the time used to speak to that anger. They used to speak about the angry tenors, like not only Coltrane, but also Sonny Rollins, for instance. And apparently every black man who played a tenor saxophone at the time was an angry tenor player, (laughs) you know? So, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what the code word for that was. I think it was just that many of the jazz musicians of that era became iconoclasts. They no longer wanted to play the polite music that, you know, that white people were comfortable with. This was the beginning of the bebop era. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the big attractions of the bebop era was the fact that these musicians were no longer willing to be bound by the laws of polite music. It became then a form of musical rebellion. And Coltrane was right in the middle. He was right in the middle of that. And as his music evolved, you began to hear a change. And one of the changes began, I think, at My Favorite Things and that album because his way of playing began to become more universal. He began to incorporate more elements of Indian ragas and um, things that that he had studied from, uh, say, Stravinsky and Nicholas Slominsky and all of these these influences that he had began to, to universalize. And the more his music progressed, the more it took on that universal feeling. And at some point, he even began to speak about that and used to say that I want my music to be a force for good. By doing so, he opened the music, he opened his heart to everyone. It was it was something that everyone could relate to and everyone could accept. This is what he wanted. This was his goal. And it was something about his universality that spoke to me. And I believe it spoke to Gil as well. We sought to be those kinds of musicians, you know, people who could not only address the anger of being a black man in America, but also to universalize those feelings and be able to put them on a, on a level where, where everyone could understand it. It's only in the last few years that I've become aware of Alice Coltrane's music. God. Yeah. Like, that <laughs> is like... up here in terms of spiritual like elevation. She's just something else. One of the favorite songs that Gil and I used to listen to, one of the favorite albums was Cosmic Music that that features oh. her and John Coltrane on, on the same album. And it was just... So amazing. Yeah. I'm thinking about kind of passing on of music and that re- sense of rebellion that you've just been talking about. And I remember reading you saying, I think it was in another interview, you were saying that American music is soundly based on the blues and the blues is soundly based on the griot tradition, on West African music and West African culture. But you also said that your music isn't yours, that you're just passing it on. Your music has been adopted, like reimagined by so many contemporary artists from Kendrick Lamar to Common. If you just take a step back and think about, you know, what is being passed on with that idea of the griot in mind, what's being passed on, Brian, through your music or what are you channeling? What are you sharing? So one of our biggest goals in the music that we did was to pass on information, kind of like 
be the drum, the talking drum of West Africa, for instance, that, you know, was basically as what they call the African telephone. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the griot's job in West Africa was that of a news reporter as well as a historian, as well as a healer, and maybe even the starter of the party. He had all of these functions in the community, and it was such a sacred function that it was passed down from generation to generation. There were families, you know, in West Africa who have had that tradition, who have had the responsibility of being griots for for generations, for hundreds of years. And what we saw in what we were doing and in our desire, you know, a lot of times you do things as people from the African diaspora, you do things and you don't really know where they come from. You know, you're not really sure. Why do I do that? Why do I think like that? Why do I say those things? Why do I move like that? And, you know, it's all because it's built into our DNA. And uh, when we looked at what we were doing and and what our goals were in in terms of the music we were doing, we, we realized that basically we were doing kind of the job that the griot was doing. So we leaned into it. You know, we decided that, hey, maybe it's best to do this even more and say and consciously while we do it be conscious of the fact that we are an extension of our tradition yeah i think about that as well when i'm thinking of this podcast it's like why why is this so important for me like this communication yeah talking about creativity and art and storytelling and when i realized that's my connection you know my dad's west african so and he's no longer with us so like that's my connection still, you know, obviously exactly. there are family members, but I really feel like I'm exactly. passing on those stories. My speciality is art, yours is music. So yeah. we just do it how we do it, but we're still passing on those histories. And it's so interesting because everybody I've spoken to for this series, whether they be dancers, art historians, musicians, poets, they're all doing the same thing. And they, they know, know it. it. Yeah. 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 You do. I mean, it, it's, I don't want to get all, you know. Woo-woo. Yeah, woo-woo. But, you know, it's a calling <laughs> in a sense. Yeah. You know, I, I, you definitely, there is definitely a sense of urgency in knowing that there is a purpose for it. Like, for instance, Gil used to call our, our songs, our albums, he used to call them survival kits on wax. And, you know, that's, that's just another way of looking at the griot. It was his responsibility to heal the community or or her responsibility to heal the community to make sure that the fabric of that society is whole. It's spiritual work. Nobody can say, okay, well, if I play this chord, you know, or if I do this dance, but in total, with all of those things, it does work. It really does. As you were just saying that, I thought that was so interesting. I was going back to our communications. This is just like a really silly note and an aside. But I was just thinking how, like, I communicate visually. You communicate, like, through sounds. <laughs> and when we were, um, when you were, like, so generously spending time on creating music for the podcast, I was like, <laughs> I don't communicate in music speak. Like, can I just show Brian a picture? And go, <laughs> it's amazing because we've connected, even though we're using different language for the same message. It's so interesting. But it's the same message. And, you know, I mean, I've even talked to basketball players, you know, who have said <laughs> they're trying to incorporate what in what they do. They're trying to incorporate messages and that transmits 
wisdom from our culture. Exactly. And we're coming to the end of the year now and the holiday season. I'm thinking about how busy you've been this year in particular. You've toured. Oh my God, you've fought out an album. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you do all this, Brian. So you've been so busy. (laughs) And now it's the holidays and time for settling down. And I'm just so interested to hear about how that looks or how that sounds for you over the holidays. I'm particularly thinking about the music that helps you just get into that slowing down, being at home, being with family. Because I'm putting a playlist together as well for the listeners. And all my guests are are sharing the songs that are grounding them as they're slowing down and as they're opening their hearts over the holidays. And so what are you going to be listening to, Brian? I mean, what a question. No, really? You did that to me? I'm so sorry. (laughs) That's just so... so, How am I asking you that? I'll tell you the ones that are not Usually, I mean, they're probably like, for instance, I mean, you know, everybody listens to the the regular class of Jingle Bell Rock and, you know, and all that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, Nat know. King Cole Christmas Na- but uh, here we album. Go. Now, <laughs> this is what I'm going to say. Okay, Nat King Cole, first of <laughs> all, you know, that's that's tops. But then you got this whole kind of wintry type stuff that goes on between Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. Mm, yeah. Anything by Ella. Anything that she's singing about Christmas, anything that Louis Armstrong is singing about Christmas, that's it for me. I'm good. I you love know? it. So you do the Christmas songs. Like, you're oh, like, yeah, I'm yeah. doing I'm, I'm going to tell you, before it's all over, I'm going to do a Christmas album. What you think? What you think <laughs> about that? <laughs> and then, of course, there's got to be Donny Hathaway in there. Yes. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's so many different takes on the spirit of this time. But I just wish that we would be able to maintain it the whole year long. You know, I'm not, I don't want to get into a whole economic, political, sociopolitical analysis of Christmas. (laughs) You know what I mean? But I love the idea of the spirit of giving. But, you know, we're not, we're not really there anymore. The spirit has turned into the spirit of buying. It was perfectly designed to be so. And I think just like, many of the distractions that we have in our society today. That's one of them. Yeah. It's a very difficult hole for us to get out of the things that we feel that we should be doing during this time of year. This is all a construct. All of that stuff is a construct. The only part that isn't a construct is the love part, the love thy neighbor part. The, the part that should happen all year long. So that, that's it. I'm rant, rant over. No, I'm on the same page with you there. But I love the idea, like when I'm putting on my Nat King Cole, when I wake up in the morning, like eight hours later, you'll be putting on Nat King Cole. <laughs> You're damn right. You're damn right. Or I might, maybe, well, maybe before you even get up, you know. I'll yes, be... <laughs> you'll still be up. <laughs> I'll still be up. <laughs> Are you a bit of a night owl? I get the uh, impression that you are from like the emails we've sent to each Uh, other. Yeah. I'm like, okay, Brian doesn't sleep. I don't sleep. Not only am I a night owl, but I'm an, I'm an early bird. So, I mean, if I get a, if I get six hours, I'm, you know, I'm good. I remember Bryant Gumbel saying when sleep is overrated, I'm not sure it is. No, I do (laughs) not agree with that. I I don't think it's overrated. (laughs) I just, you know. But you got young kids when they're teenagers and you are up first. <laughs> it's such a weird thing. You're like, you're in the house on your own. And you're like, exactly. 
Yeah, but at, at noon, you know, at one o'clock, you want to see somebody. <laughs> yeah, <you know>? exactly. <laughs> oh, Brian, what a treat speaking to you. Same, same here. Thank you so, so much. That's it? Yeah, we done? that's it. <laughs> you know yeah. what? The funny, the funny thing is I realized after I went on that long rant, I didn't even answer your question about Keith. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we both decided, you know, Keith said to me, okay, so, you know, I know you set this up so that I could have my platform. And I could talk about, you know, what's happening with me. He says, but don't you think that people are just as interested in, in you, you know, and how you got to where you are? And I was like, oh, come on, man. You know, we, we, we could do that. But, you know, this is really about, he said, no, 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 no. We're going to do this like this. Mm. Okay. I talk about me and then you talk about you. <laughs> and I was like, okay, all right, you know. So I did, you know, we, we opened up and it turned out to be one of um our most popular episodes, you mm-hmm. know, because I think that we were just so candid with each other. And uh, mm-hmm. I don't talk a lot about myself, you know. It, it's only been recently that I've started to talk a lot about my experience, to talk more about, How is that you know, my, you? my experiences. Oh, and I am trying to write that book. And, uh, you know, so I I'm, I definitely have to learn how to be more open and, and which means to be more vulnerable, which is something I've always had a couple of problems with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, so has almost every guest that I've spoken to. Mm. Do you know, I think that maybe is kind of a bit of the plight of the artist. Like all of that comes out in the work. Yeah. Not in every day. Yeah. You know. Well, it's good for you. Do you think? I, I find I find that it's good for me. Yeah. You not only learn about yourself, because what you begin to discover by opening up is like how you, you know, it's just like what you, what, what goes on in your head? What is your, what is your inner dialogue? What are the things that are not only propelling you, but keeping you back? Sometimes it's the only time we're willing to, yeah. you know, to open up. It was just such a treat speaking with you. Oh, man. Yeah. We got to do it again. <laughs> we'll do it again. We've got yeah. to do it again. Thanks for listening to this Shade Podcast conversation with Brian Jackson. I hope that you enjoyed hearing about Brian's early career, his work with Gil, and about the music that inspires him as much as I did. Be sure to check out the links to Brian's work and to everything we discussed in this episode. Everything will be in the podcast show notes. That's it for today. Until next time. Subscribe to Shade Podcast to listen to all the episodes in this series. Also explore Shade Art Review on Substack, joining thousands of art curious listeners like you who are discovering more about the work of visual artists from the Black Diaspora. There you'll find art listings, comment, artist spotlights and guest posts and free subscriptions are available. But for the full Shade Art Review experience, sign up today to receive 20% off your annual membership, an offer which is available for the duration of this series. This series of Shade Podcasts was produced and hosted by me, Lou Mensa, and mixed by Tess Davidson. See you next time.